Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we whisper weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Dr. Mark Changizi talks about what there was to say before language was invented. But first up, here's news of Pleading the Fourth. The CIA. The US government applied for Julian Assange in the UK to be extradited to the US for publishing evidence of US soldiers murdering civilians. His extradition was approved in July 2022 by the UK Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Julian Assange's American lawyers are suing the Central Intelligence Agency for violating their constitutional civil rights. The plaintiffs announced the lawsuit in a video published on YouTube on August 15th, 2022, and spoke about the issues. American attorneys Margaret Ratner-Kunstler and Debert Hrebeck, and American journalists John Getz and Charles Glass are seeking monetary and injunctive relief for violation of their rights when they visited Mr. Assange between January 2017 and March 2018. CIA whistleblowers spoke at length with journalists from Yahoo News about how the CIA hired Spanish security company UC Global and its owner-director David Morales to plant microphones and cameras throughout the Ecuadorian embassy to spy on Julian Assange and everyone who visited him, and to copy the data on every phone and laptop the visitors used and all their paper documents. This included privileged client attorney information. The security firm live streamed and recorded all the conversations. The data was brought by David Morales to the CIA directly in New York, all without a warrant. Some of the video surveillance was given to the media to make jokes about Mr. Assange trying to stand on a skateboard, but the comedians conveniently never questioned where the video came from. Mr. Pompeo sought to have the whistleblowers prosecuted. This kind of misconduct by the US government has been enough for judges in American courts to dismiss all charges, because a fair trial is impossible when the prosecution has all your legal strategies and information. This applies even when, as Judge Baratza has suggested, the Americans who spent so much effort to obtain the documents illegally promised they won't look. Daniel Ellsberg was tried for espionage for publishing the Pentagon Papers in 1973, which revealed that the US government had lied to the public about their actions in the Vietnam War. Mr Ellsberg's case was dismissed for gross misconduct by the US government when they broke into Mr Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to steal medical documents and recorded his conversations with his lawyers without a warrant. Meanwhile, the new Australian Labor government has pursued a policy of completely silent diplomacy. In a recent Senate hearing, it was revealed that despite his assurances otherwise, 
Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has done nothing to help Julian Assange. In 2019, then-opposition leader Anthony Albanese was one of 36 members of Parliament to sign a petition to bring Julian Assange back to Australia as a free man. At a press conference in May 2022, a journalist asked, Prime Minister, on foreign affairs you've previously raised concerns about the charges against Julian Assange, saying enough is enough. And a couple of weeks ago, Senator Wong said, if elected, you would encourage the US government to bring this matter to a close. As Prime Minister, is it now your position that the US should be encouraged to drop the charges against Mr Assange? And have you made any representations to that effect? Prime Minister Albanese replied, My position is that not all foreign affairs is best done with the loud hailer. It's hard to see this as being anything other than an attempt to make people think there was quiet diplomacy going on behind the scenes. In Senate Question Time on the 4th of August 2022, the representative for the Prime Minister, Don Farrell, was asked directly by Senator David Shoebridge, what exactly is the government doing to secure the release of this Australian citizen, journalist and whistleblower? The answer was that they've done nothing because the Australian government trusts the legal systems of the US and the UK. This ignores the fact that the matter is not in the courts of the UK, but in the hands of the politician, Priti Patel. Prime Minister Albanese refused to meet with Mr Assange's father and brother when they came to Parliament, and the Parliament security guards refused to allow them to bring in books about Julian Assange by UN expert on torture, Nils Melzer, on the grounds that the books were protest material. What could the Australian government do? The absolute minimum that the Australian government could do would be to publicly acknowledge that Julian Assange is a political prisoner being tortured by the UK government, as found by the United Nations Special Envoy on Torture and a team of doctors and psychiatrists. This could be followed by making arrangements with Secretary Priti Patel to admit Mr Assange to hospital for urgent treatment, followed by release to his wife and children. The government could point out that torture is illegal in the UK. The petition that Prime Minister Albanese signed in 2019 demands that the Australian government act as they have for other Australians whose rights have been violated, so that the Prime Minister personally intervenes to speak with the UK Prime Minister, whoever that is, and Home Secretary Patel to secure Mr Assange's freedom. The Prime Minister could also directly contact President Biden and remind him that President Obama didn't prosecute Mr Assange because he was warned about the consequences to press freedom and the damage to democracy in the US. He could point out that torture is illegal in the US. There are many diplomatic levers open to the Australian government, but they refuse to do even the absolute minimum. I'll put a link to the petition that Anthony Albanese signed in the show notes. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Say what?
Dr. Mark Changizi is a cognitive scientist and theorist who's been investigating human evolution. He's written his latest book, Expressly Human, with his colleague Tim Barber, about his research into what there was to say before language was invented. I spoke with him over a dodgy Zoom call and began by asking Mark, what is the silent movie problem? A lot of people tend to think that we evolved to have spoken language. In my view, is very different than that of Steven Pinker's. I think that we didn't evolve to have spoken language and that it instead spoken language culturally evolved to be shaped to be something that sounds like nature in particular respects and harnessing us. But once you start thinking about that, you're like, holy crap, that means that up until a couple hundred thousand years ago, we were just like the other apes. We had no language to speak to one another. And it leaves you wondering how the hell did we get by never and all the other animals that are social animals, how are they getting by without what we seem to take for granted, it's almost impossible to imagine going even a whole day with a whole bunch of your family and getting stuff done in the camp, let's suppose, you're, and not being able to say actual words. So start, sometimes I'm talking about even some previous work, which sets up this kind of this silent movie problem, imagining that you had these just millions and millions of years where we didn't speak, didn't have any language, and what could that possibly be like? And that's incumbent upon someone to explain, well, then really, what is the communication system that we used for all that time and that the others still use? What did we need to communicate about before we invented language? I'm going to jump to the end before I get there. In a sense, it's the same stuff we're communicating about today. But a lot of what we're communicating about is opaque to us. That is, a lot of us tend to think that today we're, I'm saying proposition P and then I'm saying Q to Ian, and then on the basis of P and Q, therefore, you know, um, whatever, R, and we're doing all of this sort of logical argumentation and the stuff of philosophers, but really a lot of what we're doing, even now that we have language, is the same kind of negotiation, compromise, coming up with ways of convincing you, hey, I think I'm right, and I'm really serious, I'm not kidding around. And you say, no, I don't really think you know what you're talking about, Mark. These kinds of pushing backs and looking for some kind of equilibrium or, or some kind of compromise point is what emotional expressions are all about. They evolved to be the compromise finding or negotiation signaling system that animals needed to have. And unbeknownst to us, even with language, even when we're on Twitter or Facebook and we're using words, even when we're not using emotional words, I mean, sometimes we're just using straight out emotional words, but even when we're not, we're still often engaged in the same kinds of negotiation back, pushing back and forth constantly. And we often trick ourselves into thinking that it's actually of the form that, you know, Socrates would be <laughs> proud of us about, but it's, or, you know, or, you know, a, a careful philosopher, but it's often not. It's actually a, a kind of poker game or, or a kind of uh, negotiation. And I'll, I'll, I can, you know, get later into how these things are all kind of um, on opposite sides of the same coin. Uh, and in the book, you talk about how social animals needed to find a way not to have to always fight when they disagree. That's right. And, and we do this all the time. So one of the nice things about poker, and I wanted to, I'll, I'll sort of mention poker as, as, as one example, here we have these social animals sitting around the table and yeah, in poker that you see on TV, sometimes they're actually talking to one another and trash talking and trying to get under, under each other's skin. 
But none of that is necessary for the game because a lot of times online people are playing and there's no verbiage back and forth. There's no emotional expressions. All there are is people just let's imagine just two people to keep it simple. They've got their hidden cards. I've got cards. You've got cards. That's like in nature, the stuff that I know about some situation. Let's suppose you and I are arguing about how much zucchini we're brothers. And I think I should get more zucchini bread that mom left out. And you think you should get more zucchini bread. And I know some stuff like I know things that mom usually wants. And you have some other information I might not want. So that's a lot like my cards in poker and your cards. And the interesting thing about poker before getting into how a signaling system has to work. But poker gives you a hint at a signaling system because I never have to talk to you. And I what we're really trying to find out is whose cards are better. Because whose cards are better? Like if I know more, more interesting and powerful information that mom told me than you have about what mom told you about zucchini bread, then you'll fold and just let me have the more have more zucchini bread like I asked for. But I can't talk about it with you. I can't say mom said this because we don't have language. But what do I do if I want to convince you that my cards are better than yours? I just shove out some chips under the table. I say, I show my confidence about you know who's supposed to have more zucchini bread by putting uh, by betting. When you bet, you're engaging in a way, you're, you're, it's a non-linguistic way of telling you, Ian, here's my level of confidence that I'm right about how much, you know, that I should get more zucchini bread than you. And then you might come back and say, push even more chips. And you're like, yeah, Mark, okay, I see that you're that confident, but I'm even more confident. So when people are playing poker, they never have to speak and they just push chips into the table. They're engaging in an emotional uh, emotionally expressive kind of conversation because what is conveyed when you can when you bet you're conveying confidence and what is confidence confidence is an emotion you are therefore emotionally expressing you're saying here's how confident i am and you're actually doing it somewhat honestly that is you're not willy-nilly just saying hey i'm this confident my p value is you know point oh you know yeah, 0.02 or 0.001. No, I'm actually putting something at stake. I'm putting you know money at stake or chips, whatever the chips stand for in poker. Now, the interesting thing about emotional expressions is, is that animals had to evolve in some sense, had already evolved for tens of millions of years. The same thing that poker players are doing. They couldn't speak, but they could claim that they're confident of a certain level, but they had to do so with, with via some, something that's bet, that's dear. And what we would bet is reputation. When I say to you in a community, I say, Ian, mom said I should have more. Now, of course, I'm using language to convey it rather than using a proud expression, let's say. But in, in order to convey it, I have to just talk here on the radio or whatever. So by conveying a certain level of confidence, other people, in the, you know, my mom here, my other sisters, people down the street know that I was really trash talking. I say, mom's definitely said I should have more. And then it, maybe later we decide to, instead of, um, instead of in poker, you agreeing with me, which would be to fold. You go, okay, Mark, your hand, your hand is maybe better than mine. Instead of you agreeing, okay, Mark, you can have more zucchini bread. Maybe you call. They would say, you call, you say, you give up and you want to fight about it, which is what, you know, animals always used to do. That's always what you can always do. Let's go ask mom. And so it turns out I was wrong. I was just totally trash talking and bluffing. And then I've lost reputation. I can I feel humiliated, right? And so that spreads amongst the community. When you are really proud or really confident and you're found out to be wrong, you feel humiliated. 
And the other thing that I can do is I can also just say that you don't know what you're talking about. Rather than saying that I'm so great, I can say that, Ian, you're, you know, you're a loser. You always, you never know what mom wants and you're something like this, or mom doesn't even love you, right? I, I lower you rather than raising me. That's more of something called disdain. And when you do that, I'm also pushing chips. So if it turns out that I'm wrong and mom says, no, I really love Ian more than more, then I've lost, you know, I've lost reputation as well. So the key to how animals were able to negotiate and negotiate writ large, all the kinds of just coming up with compromises was they had to engage in these little exchanges of, okay, I'm really confident, or you're totally not confident. That's a kind of disdain. And in doing so, they're also, because it's a social community, the other animals, social animals are gossipers and they're keeping track and they're watching. And so you have to be careful when you push in these chips and make these claims because it could come back to haunt you later. So that's the kind of negotiation system that we needed to have and a way, a way to go back and forth and say, I want more. No, I want more. Or I can say, you know, oh, no, totally. I get it. Mom loves you more. You should have more or whatever. I can be conciliatory in which case I'm not betting reputation. I'm kind of unbetting, you know, maybe I had bet some earlier and I can pull some off the table because now I'm being nice. These are the kinds of mechanisms that we needed. And what we do in the book is sort of derived from first principles. Here's exactly the space of signals that animals have to have to be able to engage in these somewhat honest negotiations. I say somewhat because, of course, people do lie in poker, but you can't, you know, you've got to be careful when you lie because you can always get caught. Yes, yes. So you've got the need to express what you want and how confident you are, and then you've got a negotiation about what you believe about the other person's claim. But you've also got to be not completely honest about uh, how ready you are to fight. There will be many different kind of personality types for how people tend to rise in reputation over time. What we'd really like to do is rise and, and have a big stack of chips, basically reputation chips. Because if I do have a big stack of reputation chips in, in poker, we call that the poker, the chip bully. Someone who's you know suddenly gotten most of the chips at the table, they can just bully people around. And someone, you know, I think I think I've really good hand, but then Ian, you have a huge stack of chips. You just throw in a whole bunch, and I say I don't. <laughs> I don't want to go all in because I don't have much to go all in with. So I just, I just fold immediately. So if you have a big reputation, you can just, just bluster people all the time and make them back down, back down, back down. And so there's some personality types that are good at that and they rise in reputation over time, but others are just more like the chipmunks in the Disney movies who are just sweet and nice the whole time. And they're always trying to be honest and never trying to bluff their way into getting people to agree with them because that's also can be dangerous. Uh, one false move, one false you know, situation where I go, Ian, do you know who I am? And then it turns out I was wrong and I'm found out to be wrong. I can, I can lose a tremendous amount of reputation. So there's many different kinds of personality types and ways of, of engaging in a negotiation that could work. And I would imagine there's, you know, there's, there's a whole game theory kind of world that you can invent, you know, uh, study in terms of the different kinds of uh, personalities and how they fare against one another. And you mentioned in the modern world, internet trolls are able to get away with spending social reputation over and over and over because people don't remember that they've lost it. Yes. And so yes and no. So, I mean, one thing that I, one counterintuitive thing, I think internet, it's certainly in the comment sections, for example, in, at an, at a magazine, the most internet trolly folks are the ones where you can just pop on and comment on other people's threads and you'll never see the same people again on Twitter for example, I think a lot of people's first reactions, and I've heard a lot of very well-meaning people who say, look, you shouldn't be allowed to even have an anonymous account, or you're being a coward for having an anonymous account. I think that 
that's wrong for a number of reasons. One, you have a real identity in the sense that your identity persists over time. And yes, it doesn't necessarily correlate to the actual person, is not known to be you know, mapping to you in the real world. But nevertheless, you've developed, let's say, 200,000 followers. It took you five years to do that. You've made lots and lots of claims over time, and enough of them were deemed to be true by others and you, so that you developed a kind of reputation. So, And you would be very upset to have lost it. So I, I think that the reason that people tend to be troll-like on the internet is less about their anonymity. Because even in the real world where you do it, you have anonymity all the time. You show up to get a coffee at the coffee shop and you don't know the barrister. Maybe the barista, the barista, barista has, you know, her name sitting there on her. But, you know, you don't really read it. And even if you said her name, it's not like you know her or she knows you. It's effectively an anonymous relationship for all practical purposes. But you're nice to each other. You're, in fact, you know, quite sweet. 99% of the time, our relationships with the passerbys in life is quite nice. So I think... What's really missing and the reason that the barista and you have a nice relationship, whereas it's much more uh, volatile and troll-like on the internet and even on Twitter, is because the full suite of emotional expressions that undergird our negotiations, which of course are partly there in the text, uh, but they're in the intonation of our voice, but they're also just richly in our emotional expressions and our gestures, and, and all of these things that, that, that are being conveyed, which we do unconsciously, they're all there when you're talking to the barista. But only a pale, pale comparison is there when we're texting, uh, when we're texting or, or doing text in, a, in, let's say, a tweet. So when I think a lot of these people, you're just you just come to hate each other on Twitter because you're just if you were in person saying the exact same things, you'd be modulating your tone very differently because you're right in front of them and you're you're getting the signals and your brain naturally responds to their signals in a completely different way and in a completely organic and designed and you know ingenious way in person, whereas it's just sort of a hack when you're looking online. So people end up, I think it's it's short circuiting the normal human socio. Uh, emotional interactions. And so I think that's mostly what un is undermined. So I, I've been pushing for you know, trying to come up with mechanisms th that, I mean, it, it, social media platforms like Facebook get, they all get that they need to allow more emotional expressiveness. For example, I mean, just the fact that there's like buttons, right? Like buttons is an emotional expression. I like it. Oh, that's great. Like, I love it. Uh, you're great. I like it's a, it's a it's an emotional expression of respect of some kind. And then Facebook has, you know, for a few years now, you can hit happy and sad and surprised. And right, you've got like six different things, but these are still a pale comparison. What you would like to be able to do is actually be able to respond with the full four-dimensional. Turns out when you understand the ideas in the book, there's a four-dimensional space of emotional expressions. And it's not complicated, but I'm not going to try to talk about it in, in an auditory venue, but it's it's just you know, all the emotional expressions you know and love, and you can arrange it in a two-dimensional space, which is sensible and has a nice structure to it. You need the ability to express within that four-dimensional space, and not just to pick you know, I don't know. It should be such that when it's presented to the person seeing it, it feels organic and natural. It shouldn't be, you know, done in some kind of, you know, medium that doesn't really tap into those things. But I, if there was a way of ramping up the UX in some sense, the user experience to push the emotional expressiveness into these social networks and social media, I think you would you would have much uh, cleaner 
better behavior, which was more the way that humans act in most, you know, 99% of circumstances in real life where they're just nice to each other for the most part. I think that's right. And I think some people are just seem to be better at projecting in their mind what the other person's reactions would be. And they seem to behave better. Whereas the people who have trouble with that are the ones who behave more badly. It seems that if they don't have the person in front of them, they, yeah, they yeah. can't imagine their reaction as well as they should. And I, I mean, I, I like to imagine that I'm better than average, but I'm not, you know, and maybe I am better than average, or let's suppose I'm better than average at conveying my emotions with text such that it's, you know, still being understood by the, by the other person. I would still bet it's 10% of my ability in normal life. So we're all handicapped when we're on there at our ability. And so people are often talking past each other and they're just getting angry at each other, but neither of them really has received the message that they intended to receive and they're interpreting each other's in the wrong way. And it's all getting short-circuited. I mean, that problem even started with email, I think. So many times text communications just get completely interpreted by the other person according to how they're feeling on the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. That was part one of Mark Changizi, author of The Vision Revolution, Harnessed and Expressly Human, talking about the evolution of social communication before language. Listen next week for part two. Before I go this week, a little housekeeping. Google has killed the last of the feed burner services I was using. They're just relaying the feed now. If you're a mailing list subscriber, I've had to move the list to follow.it. There'll be a link in the emails for you to unsubscribe if you want to change your mind. I'm testing out different platforms now for analytics, but most are pay sites. Some people have been unable to download new episodes for over a month on the Internet Archive. So... I'm now looking at podcasting platforms. I'm going to test out some sponsorship and ads if I can find them to help pay for the new platforms. Spotify's Anchor.fm has some basic services at the free level, but ultimately, I think I'm going to have to pay. I'll do my best to block unethical or annoying ads. As always, send feedback to science at diffusionradio.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website 
for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.